Isn't it exciting to celebrate baptisms? That's one of my favorite parts of ministry. And um, last night we baptized five more, some college students and a whole uh, three, three quarters of a family. So that was awesome as well. But if you are joining us for the first time here, the first, first time in a while, we're looking at the first 18 verses of the book of John, a section of scripture known as the prologue. It's one of the most influential texts in all of the Christian faith. It's had an incredible influence on our understanding on the, of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so later in the year, probably about new uh, school year time, we're going to launch into a journey through the gospel of John. And and that'll take us who knows how long. Uh, we'll take some breaks during it, but that'll take us a while. But in the meantime, we took, we're taking these three weeks to do a deep dive into this incredible little passage of Scripture. And so for those that may be just joining us or just to, to get it fresh in your mind, I just want to read you the whole 18-verse passage right now, and then we're going to really focus in on the last five verses of that section. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along John chapter 1. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen right behind me as well. John starts his gospel this way. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John 1, 1 through 18. Now, to get us where we're heading here today, uh, I'll tell you a little story. As a kid, we used to travel all over. My family traveled. They were in ministry, and we traveled, spent about half of every year on the road in an orange Volkswagen van with no air conditioning and like squirt bottle. It was, it was an interesting time. So we'd travel all over. It was a great way to grow up, actually. But I remember this one time we stayed about an hour or so um, west of Kansas City on a pig farm. That was where we stayed overnight. 
for, for a couple nights. My parents were doing a seminar there. And so as we were on this pig farm, we had a lot of fun, actually. They had a giant pond, and we went out and we caught these huge frogs out there, uh, just like massive frogs. And that was, that was fun. And then I remember I went to my first Major League Baseball game out there, the Twins and the, uh, the Royals. And it was, it was a blast. Uh, first game I'd ever been to. In fact, I remember after the game, and I don't know why my mom let us do this, but after the game, my brother and I walked through the bleachers and picked up hundreds of, like, big gulp beer cups. I don't know why we did this, but we picked up hundreds of these things and brought them home in the trunk. And then my mom made us wash them all. Um, so, because it just, it was nasty. I mean, can you imagine this day and age doing that? Ew, right? Hundreds of people's germs, uh, not to mention, yeah. So, anyway, but the thing I remember most about this place in this time, the pig farm, is that it stunk, like, really bad. And some of you, you know, like, you lived in Greeley or stayed in Greeley, <laughs> So you got to get this a little bit, right? It like it was just it just stunk. And here's the interesting thing is is as we stayed there, we, it was like I don't know how anybody could live here, and yet they did. And in fact, they didn't even smell it anymore. It was just the air they breathe, and they're just like it, it doesn't even stink to them anymore. Just the air they breathed, right? Now, in the time of John. When John writes this gospel, there were lots of Greek philosophers. And before the time of Jesus, for hundreds of years, they'd been debating this idea that there's a logic or a principle, something that structures the world and holds the world together. And they ended up, the philosophers ended up calling this concept the logos or the word. And so John's going to come around and, and, and tell us something about that. But I think our culture actually has kind of a philosophy or an idea that drives things, that kind of holds things t- together when it comes to our culture and how we approach life. And I think that idea is the idea of self. A writer coined this term as expressive individualism. And tell me if you think this describes what we see in our, in our cult- culture at large. The ideas around this are that the highest good is, is the individual, individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, self-expression. That humans are inherently good, that the world will inevitably improve as the scope of that, that freedom and expression grows. Taken to its extreme, um, there's a concept called transhumanism, or it's been rebranded Humanity Plus. And taken to extreme is basically that technology will save us. It's kind of a utopian ideal. But behind all of that is this idea of the self, that it's all about the self, my expression, my individual, like whatever I do. In fact, um, these, here's some phrases you hear all the time if, if you're listening for them. Like, you do you. Have you heard that? Like, hey, hey bro, you, you do you. I'll do me, you do you, Right? Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. Now, a lot of these things actually sound really good to us. Why? Because it's the air we breathe. It's just everywhere. I mean, you don't really pause and think about it because it's just, it's just the air we breathe. It's, the, it's society that we live in, right? There's a quote from a, a, a blog I read 
this week. It said this, for a society awash in expressive individualism, the greatest commandment is to be yourself, and the second is like it, to affirm and applaud whatever self your neighbor chooses to be. The greatest sins, then, are to deny yourself or to question or judge someone else's self-expression. You think that describes our culture at all? I think so. And see, for most people, I think that's kind of the defining idea, the, the meaning we structure our lives around. Like I said, it's the air we breathe. Even for Christians. I saw a survey by uh, Barna, who's a pollster, and 66% of church-growing Christians say that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Now, ironically, many of those people probably go to churches that, at least on paper, say they agree with a famous document, the Westminster Catechism, which says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In fact, we have a saying around here, we say it all the time, and that's that life is for you, not about you. And when you get those things mixed up and reversed, all of a sudden, um, bad things happen in your heart and in your life. You descend. In fact, the result of this kind of thinking, the result of the air we breathe as a culture, is hopelessness, anxiety, um, despair, a restlessness in our hearts, depression. I think one of the root causes of that is because ultimately there's, there's something deep inside the heart of humanity that knows that we cannot save ourselves in the end. There's something that we're aware that there's, there's a darkness within us. There's something deeply printed on our heart and minds that know that we need a savior and a savior from without of us. I mean, just look at all the movies we like. If you have kids, you know the kind of movies they like. Superhero movies, right? Marvel movies. And it's always this, this savior. In fact, uh, anybody like Mandalorian? Star Wars Mandalorian? Yeah, yeah, we got some in here. My kids are really into, into Mandalorian. And it's interesting. It's, it's basically like an old Western show. And he's traveling around to all these, all these villages, right? And, and the interesting thing is none of the villages can save themselves, can they? It always takes a savior from outside. It's like there's this story that our, our culture, it's deeply printed on the heart of humanity that we need a savior, that we can't save ourselves. And John, as he comes along and writes his gospel, he speaks into this. And he says, yeah, the, the word, the, the logos, the, the logic, the structure that holds everything together is personal. It's not just a a." a force. It is a he, and that person is Jesus Christ. It's God himself, the second person of the Trinity. He describes him as the creator of all things, that everything came into being through. And he's the, the light that enters the darkness of our life and our souls and the darkness of creation that was fallen and since Genesis 3. A scholar says this, the word challenged the darkness before creation and now challenges the darkness that is found tragically within creation itself. And John says, hey, the light isn't something that you can discover within yourself. The light is from without. The light is from the true source of life. That light is Jesus. And so he says, he, he, he says in this section, the word 
became flesh. And we're going to dig into these last five verses of this passage. And this verse may be the kind of the, this is the point, this is the heart of what John is trying to get to in the section. And I'm going to switch to um, ESV, the English Standard Version, which is a little bit more of a a word-for-word translation to the Greek um, for this section here today. It says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh, he says. And this is interesting. Flesh, it's this Greek word, sarks. And this is the, the, uh, the idea of the incarnation. We talk about the incarnation oftentimes at Christmas time. What we celebrate at Christmas is the incarnation, this sentence right here, that God became flesh, that that divinity took on flesh. 100% God, 100% man in the person of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh or God in the bob. That's the idea here. In fact, incarnation, does it, we're getting ready to take a whole team down to Mexico, about 60-some people here um, at the uh, end of the month of May, and we're going to build a couple houses there, and there's this awesome taco stand down the street, one of my favorites, and we're going to go eat some incredible carne asada tacos. Yeah. Anybody like carne asada? Yeah. Well, carne, so the idea of incarnation is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. And this idea, this whole concept would have been shocking to somebody that came from a Greek kind of train of thought, Greek philosophers, because to to a Greek mind, they believe that there's a fundamental separation between the divine spiritual realm and the mundane world of the flesh. In fact, the flesh is bad. The earthly stuff is bad. The goal is to escape this life, which was why the, the resurrection was such a, a crazy concept for them as well. Spirit good, flesh, mundane world kind of lesser bad. That's the idea in Greek thinking. And, but there's even a deeper thought behind this idea that the word became flesh. And that is the idea that, that he became vulnerable, killable, essentially. That, that the word that God himself the one who, who spoke and created everything that exists would come in the form of a tiny baby, vulnerable, crying little baby, and become vulnerable, become killable. In his early years of life, had to flee because Herod tried killing him, right? And eventually, obviously, Rome and the religious leaders would crucify him. The word became flesh, became vulnerable, became like us. In fact, that's why the author of Hebrews says, you have a high priest in Jesus who understands. He's an empathetic high priest because he understands what it's like to be vulnerable, to be a human, to experience what we experience, to, to experience uncertainty and fear and pain and betrayal and loss. It says he's been tempted in every way that we are. He gets it. He knows what you're going through, but yet he's without sin. And because of that, he's he's an empathetic high priest. Go between us 
and the Father, God. He gets it. See, one of the, one of the key tenets of Islam, one of their main phrases, the idea is, God is great. And, and here's what I think is, in that idea, God is great, that is actually something that is observable in, through natural revelation. Just like Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Like Paul says in Romans, that um, there's basically enough, inf- God has planted enough information in the universe, in his creation, that it would cause our hearts to reach out and seek him. To go, there must be a God to, to explore and, and, and look for God. But the truth of this, the truth of, of our faith is, is that the idea that God came, that God is, has humility, that he humbled himself, that he became frail, vulnerable, killable, one of us. Man, that took the revelation of the specific, the, the word of Jesus for us to see that. He came into the world. And when you see this word world all throughout um, the book of John, it's, he, he typically uses the word cosmos. Now, sometimes that word could just mean like everything that exists, creation. But frequently, when he speaks of the world, he speaks of it as basically um, the sphere of creation that lives in rebellion against God. In fact, John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the, in the Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And you see world here, and you see world all throughout. Typically, and so many times, John actually uses it. And what's, what's profound about that, um, John uses it in this almost derogatory fashion. It's not that the world, the, the cosmos was so great that Jesus came, it was that it was so broken that he, that he he had to come. It, it's an it, it's it displays his love. How incredible his love is that he would come to a broken world like this in the flesh. And the point of all this is that we needed a savior from outside of us. We needed a savior from without. You know, the error of transhumanism or humanity plus is that it, it, it fails to address the, uh, the root cause of our human condition, which is the sinful nature of humanity. In fact, it's a good thing to remember. Like a lot of movements, philosophies of the last century, like fascism, communism, uh, eugenics, they all had similar utopian ideals. They all thought, like, we can create a utopia here through human means. And you know what it resulted in? It resulted in unprecedented death and destruction. In fact, communism just alone killed 100 million-plus people just in the last century. Brutal. Why? Because they failed to account for the sinful nature of humankind. That actually we are fallen, that we have a sinful nature. Nobody had to teach you or your children to be selfish, right? You didn't have to teach them, did you? I mean, they were two or three years old. They, they walked into the room younger than that. And it was like, mine. And that doesn't change when we get older. We just get a little, uh, you know, more coy about the way we do it, don't we? 
but we still experience that mind, right? Nobody had to teach you to be selfish, self-centered. It's just it comes naturally to us. It's part of our fallen, sinful nature. You know this. You recognize that there's this deep place within that there's, there's this ick There's this darkness. Some of you, you've experienced the feeling of someone that you didn't really like and you got news that something bad happened to them or, you know, they hit a little road bump in life and and there was some part of you that rose up and actually felt good about that. And you're like, ew, where'd that come from? Come from your heart, from within. See, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful beyond all things. Listen to your heart. Listen to your heart is kind of the theme of our culture. It's the air we breathe, right? And Scripture would go, no, no, listen to the voice of God and your mama. That, you'll, you'll do better that way. You'll do better that way. See, we needed a Savior from without, and so the Word came, the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glorious the only Son from the Father. He dwelt. And this is such a powerful concept for, for those coming from a Jewish background. This is shocking. Just like the idea of the word became flesh was shocking for somebody from a Greek background. This is shocking to people from a Jewish background because the very way that John phrases this, he dwelt. It's, it's the same word as the Greek Old Testament that so many people read at this time. Um, it's the same word that they use in Exodus where God came and tabernacled in the midst. He dwelt. His glory descended on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and he dwelled in the midst of his people. He was with them. Um, Eugene Peterson, the author of uh, the message paraphrase of the Bible, puts it this way. He moved in to the neighborhood. This is Jesus is, is, is God dwelling with Israel like he did in the desert, except for at a whole new level. They beheld his glory. They're with him. He moved into the neighborhood. We've seen his glory, John says. The glory of God that was once restricted to the tabernacle is now visible with them in Christ. Can you imagine the thrill of being part of that generation that was actually with God in the flesh? John, writing in one of his letters to the, uh, to the early churches, said this in John, 1 John 1, one of his little letters right at the end of the Bible. He said, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's excited about this. He's like, we're eyewitnesses, not just that. We, we, We touched him. We were with him. Powerful concept. And then he said, we've seen his glory. One is from the only Father, full of grace and truth. And this is such a powerful phrase. There is so much packed within this little phrase. Full of grace and truth. See, the person of Jesus is a person that's full of grace and truth. And not 50-50. Like 50% grace, 50% truth. This is like 100% grace and 100% truth simultaneously. We have a hard time with this because most of us either lean towards like truth person or grace person, right? The truth person, the, the, the grace person, you're just like, just love, love, love everybody. You're okay, I'm okay, we just love. Come here, group hug, group hug. 
And just the thought of like ever like saying someone to something to someone that's a little bit like pushing against their self-expression just like gives you the willies. You're like, oh, I don't know about that, right? Freaks you out. Now, truth people, you're just like, this is right. That's not right. Like the littlest things, right? And you annoy people. Yeah, I'm just telling you that. This is, yeah, this is the right way it is. That's not fair. Some of you have the kid in your family. That's not fair, like justice. My kids measure um, with a gram scale. Uh, I have this little like food scale. They measure like to the gram when we make them split ice cream or something, you know? It's a great parenting tip. My dad taught me it. It's like, okay, you cut and you decide. And they're going to get it dead on, like to the gram, okay? <laughs> but you have that kid in your family, like justice, right? Truth and grace. We have a hard time putting the two together. And Jesus, 100% grace and 100% truth. Now, grace, grace is unmerited favor. That's the definition. It means that you get let off the hook for something, that you had a debt you could not pay, and someone paid that debt for you. In fact, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That unmerited favor, you didn't deserve it. You've been forgiven. Your debt has been paid. That's the idea behind grace. That sounds pretty great. Why not just grace? Why not just grace? See, our, our culture would love a a version of Christianity. In fact, um, for many people you talk to, this is the version of Christianity. It's just constantly grace without truth. Grace instead of truth. In fact, some of you have heard the statement made, man, that's just Old Testament. You hear like Ten Commandments or something. That's just Old Testament, right? And the idea that our culture likes to, the air we live in, the air we breathe, is this, that Jesus is all about not judging. In fact, the one verse that almost everybody in the culture can quote is like, do not judge. Don't judge me, bro. Jesus said that. I know some scripture. You're like, I know that one. Don't judge me, right? Jesus is just all about love and acceptance. And truth is kind of what I decide. Like, you have your truth. I have my truth. Here's, here's what you've got to understand. Here's what truth is. Truth is not your truth. Truth is not my truth. Truth is God's truth. One of my commentaries said this, and I thought it was so good. Truth is a self-disclosure that alone comes from God. Truth is not just what is right, but what is divine, and this is right. In other words, God designed the universe. He understands the way that it works, and so it, when he reveals truth, he's revealing what truth actually is. It's a statement of what is, what is, is. God says, truth, you want to see truth. In fact, Jesus will later describe himself as the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the, tr the truth, and the life. Um, that's a little narrow, Jesus. I mean, don't all paths sort of lead to God? No, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, there are many paths, right? Um, you might ask Jesus about that. So he says, no. Well, that seems a little judgmental. Didn't he say, don't judge me, bro? See, here's how Jesus 
Here's how grace and truth worked itself out in Jesus' life. You know, there's a rich young ruler. He comes up and says, hey, um, like, what do I really need to do? And Jesus says, well, what, is, what does the law say? What does the Old Testament say? And he kind of walks through, like, you know, he starts counting through the Ten Commandments in his mind. He's like, yeah, I've done all that. You know, love God, love your neighbor kind of thing. All the, It worked out. I think I've done a really good job at that. And Jesus looks at him, and he says one of the hardest things. He says, I'll tell you what, here's the problem. Um, You know the thing about having no other gods before me? You kind of do, and that's your stuff. And so here's what you need to do is, why don't you go sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me? Now, Jesus isn't against stuff or wealth or wealthy people. But for this guy, he knew that this was actually the God in the center of his life. And Jesus looks at him. And the grace is, hey, I'm, there's an invitation. Come follow me. But there's something that's keeping you from that. And that's the truth. It's hard to hear. In fact, there's another story where there's a woman. She's caught in, in adultery. And the, the religious leaders holler her in front of Jesus. And they say, Jesus, like the law of Moses, says that people caught in there, there's a death penalty. Stone him to death. Now, ironically, there's no dude there. Dude was supposed to be there too, right? That was the culture. That was the air they breathed at the time. But here, they haul this poor, poor woman up in front of the crowd. And Jesus, we don't know exactly, but scholars speculate. Jesus stoops down and he starts writing in the sand. We don't know what he wrote, but many people think he started listing off the sins of these religious leaders, like writing them. And one by one, they start peeling off. So the oldest first, that's significant. Why? Because they've lived a while. They know their hearts, right? They peel off. And Jesus looks up, and all the the guys are gone. And and he asks the woman, he's like, hey, where are your accusers? And um, she says, they're gone, Lord. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. And then you know what he says next? That's grace. Jesus, love. Now go and sin no more. That's truth. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. You're forgiven. Now change your life because that is a destructive way that you are living. You will hurt others, you will hurt yourself, and you will offend the holy God. Change your life. Do you know there's actually grace in that truth? It's all part of the love of God. Now a caution to the truth people who think you all, you've got it all dialed in and, you know, you, you like to point the finger at other people is, is, is this, that you're just one sin away from landing in a place where you desperately are aware of your need for grace. You know that. But a caution to the grace people is you can just be a really nice Christian, gracious with people all around you, and actually be contributing to people's self-deception. Because if you don't have somebody speaking truth in your life, you are very prone to descending into self-deception. We are experts at lying to ourselves. Some of you know this, right? That's why it's always a good idea to, to get wise counsel from people that you know and trust and have people in your life that you know will, 
Well, I tell you the truth. That's why, you know, instead of listening to your heart, you might want to listen to your mama and those good friends around you. You know, like, oh, he's so cute. And the people around you are going, danger, danger. Man, I've seen this. I've watched this. There's, there's pain ahead. Listen to truth, grace and truth. It's like that. I mean, otherwise, you're just living on a pig farm and you don't think it stinks. It smells great in here. Dude, it's a pig farm. You got to be kidding me, right? Jesus, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness about him. This is John the Baptist. We talked about him last week. And cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Another passage, John says, "Um, the one, I baptize you with the water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And this idea of fullness, this would also trigger a whole bunch of um, things in a Greek-thinking mind. This was a big concept. There's a religion, a philosophy called Gnosticism, where there's this idea of this secret or special knowledge that would bring this idea of fullness. Usually it had to do with getting in touch with your inner selves. This is still like a big thing in New Age kind of thinking in circles. And, and he says, it's not just like the, the special religious people. No, he says, all that put their faith and trust in Jesus have received the fullness. We've received it. We've received the fullness of grace and grace and more grace in our lives. Grace upon grace. This is such an incredible phrase. Grace upon grace. You see, what is he talking about? Well, he ties it next to to the the Ten Commandments. In fact, the whole Hebrew law, but especially the Ten Commandments, it's the overview, right? In fact, remember last fall, we did a series called Decalogue. We we took like a whole year and preached through the book of Exodus. But we we took four or five weeks looking at this incredible passage of Scripture, the the Ten Commandments, one of the most influential um, texts in all of the world. And what we saw is the heart of the Ten Commandments was actually grace. That before God gets to the, like the family rules, he says, hey, I rescued you, I redeemed you, I delivered you. I am the Lord your God. You're my people. You're in. Now let's talk about how to live life in a way that you will thrive and you will be a light to the nations around you. I created you. Now I'm going to give you the owner's manual for life. So you won't have to wonder what's God's will for daily living of my life. You just kind of know it. So if you want to know what the will of God is, as people ask us so many times, what's the will of God for my life? Well, it starts with knowing his word. What does his word say? Answers so many questions. You wouldn't even have to wonder. What does it say about, um, you know, our, how our relationship with our stuff and our relationship with, with you know, our morality? What does it say? Knowing what the owner's manual says. Why? Because actually, this is the way you will thrive when your life aligns with truth. Not your truth, but the truth. There is a truth that is the truth, that is God's truth. It's in him. Even the sacrificial system is like, how is that grace? That seems so barbaric. 
But can you imagine in the midst of an ancient and barbaric culture where they would sacrifice, I mean, they would slash themselves and mutilate themselves to try to earn favor with the gods. They would sacrifice hundreds and hundreds of children sometimes on, on the fires of Molech, just trying to earn favor with the gods. And, and into the midst of that, God comes in and says, tell you what, here, let, I'm going to put this system in place that's going to point ahead towards the ultimate sacrifice. You're going to have to do it every year, but you can know I'm okay with God, that I can have peace with God. That's a grace in that kind of barbaric culture. It's an incredible grace, actually. And it was pointing ahead towards the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice that would be paid once and for all. It was Jesus Christ when he gave his life for us on the cross. Paul talks about the law this way. He's like, the law actually diagnosed the problem within us. It showed us where we fell short. He said, I, you know, I could do pretty well keeping some of these external ones, and then I got to this one called coveting, and he's like, oh, there's the law, and it actually, it's like it's produced covetousness in me, he says. But you know, the, the Having something that diagnoses the problem within you is actually grace. Truth diagnose, diagnoses. It's, it helps you understand where you fall short. I had a friend uh, that had a significant blockage in one of his primary arteries. And when the doctor came in and told him about that, gosh, that doesn't feel very gr like grace. But it is because they got that problem taken care of. And this is the idea, is the law is going to point out your need for the grace of God. Because you and I know, even if you do a pretty good, you know, job of keeping, you know, the, the major top ten, man, when you look at your heart, it's like there's, there's this darkness within. How do I deal with that? It's the gospel. The good news is that the free gift of God is eternal life. I mean, if Jesus had just stopped it like, hey, neither do I condemn you in our culture. It's like everybody would just, there's out of the end of the movie, and she gets up and just walks off. Every, you know, in our culture, it's like, yeah, let's just clap for that, right? Neither do I condemn you. Now, you know, just go express yourself and, and you know, be you. Find your fulfillment. I get it. I mean, we just like clap for that movie. Wow, yeah. He doesn't. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Like change the way you're living. Align your life with the truth. Grace upon grace. So grace and grace. He says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses, grace and truth. And really the heart behind this, as you look at the original language, is like the grace and the truth, like deep grace, deep truth. The heart behind grace and truth. What, what, the ultimate thing that God wanted to reveal to us, Jesus Christ. A scholar says this, the law given by Moses points in the right direction, but like Moses himself, it doesn't take us to the promised land. For that, you need the grace and truth that come through Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Another commentator, I thought this was profound. He says this, the Ten Commandments graciously teach us how to live, but Jesus' deep grace keeps forgiving us as we seek to live 
but are never fully able to live as, as we know we should. Grace is this. Not only have you been forgiven, you continue to be forgiven over and over and over again. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The only God, in case there's any question from all of the other idea of the Trinity and and God in the flesh, Jesus being fully God. Again, John's going to say that. And then Jesus will go on to repeat it over and over and over again in such ways that they kill him for it. Makes it very clear. And I love this because you get this idea. He's at the Father's side, the only God. He came to this earth in the flesh, died, rose again, and now he's back at the Father's side. And he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us, God's presence dwelling with us in an incredible, profound way. He's made God known to us. And if you forget everything else I said today, here's what I want you to remember. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. See, see the air we breathe in our culture is that you, you can somehow save yourself. You are the answer to your problems. Just look within. Truth would say you need a Savior. You need a different reference point for living your life. See, part of the Savior is that he speaks grace and truth. It's not just eternal salvation. It's the truth that you can align your life with now so that you can thrive in life. It's the answer to the hopelessness you feel. In fact, that you know what you should do, but it seems like you always come up short. You notice you can't even keep your own rules very well? The ones that you made up for yourself? The anxiety you feel, never knowing how you match up to those around you or even matching up to your own expectations for yourself, right? The restlessness your heart feels when you get what you worked so hard to get and thought would bring you fulfillment and you realize it's not there. It didn't fulfill. See, you were created through him and for him. You need a savior. You need a savior, not just... He actively (laughs) comes along. He saves us eternally. But he also saves us for abundant life in this life. When you align your life with the way he designed. That's what Augustine, I started the series with this quote, and I think it's so powerful. He said, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. And some of you, man, that's where you're at today. And the good news, the news of the gospel, is that God became flesh. I want to invite Winston up. We're going to close in his song. And as he comes up, I just want to close by telling you a quick story. I I remember this story growing up in church. They told it every Christmas Eve. And nobody knows the author. It's an unknown author. But Paul Harvey... um, radio guy made it famous. And it's the story of this guy. There's a big snowstorm on Christmas Eve that comes in, and, and the man that usually goes to, to church with his wife, he's like, 
I just can't do it. I don't believe all this God in the flesh, incarnation stuff. You go to the midnight service. I'll wait up for you, honey. I'll keep the fire on, keep the house warm. Just didn't make sense to him, and he was kind of too honest to pretend otherwise. And as he stays home, his wife went off. He starts hearing on the, on the window what sounds like uh, the thud of snowballs. He's like, that's weird. What is that? He goes out and looks, and there's a small flock of birds that gets caught in the snowstorm, and they're freezing to death, and they're just trying to get in to the light through the window to the warmth. And he, he goes, oh, no, I can't let these birds die. And so he runs outside, and he opens the barn doors up, and, and he, he tries everything he can to get them in. He tries shooing them in. They won't go in. He tries running breadcrumbs up to the door. They won't follow that. It's just everything. He, nothing he can do will get them to come into the warmth that will save their life. And this is how the story goes. It says, and that's when he realized they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I am a strange and terrifying creature. If I could only think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but help them. But how? Any move he made intended to frighten them and confuse them. He thought to himself, if he came up with an idea, he said, if I could only be a bird and mingle with them and speak their language, then I could tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them so they could see and hear and understand. And the story goes that at that moment, the church bells began to ring. And the sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind. And as he stood there listening to the bells play, O come all ye faithful, peeling out the glad tidings of Christmas, at that moment, he sank to his knees in the snow. See, this is truly the great news. And if this could become the air you breathe, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And if you could embrace that grace and that truth, not just for entrance into eternal life, but for your daily life, how you live your life, I think it would change everything for you.